Hi there. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I'm so glad to be here with you today. I love the Psalms. I love this Bible study. I love you guys. So it's a good day. So I'm going to start out with a bummer of a truth right now that we actually all know, but sometimes we just have to put it in two words. Life is hard. Sometimes it's really hard, and sometimes it's a little hard. Sometimes it's hard for a long time. Sometimes it's hard, hard for a short time. Sometimes we have a respite from the hard, but hard always returns. And I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. And I have a little joke for you about hard, because you kind of have to lighten the mood when that's what we're talking about. When, you're, when the psalm is a lament, you have to have a little bit of a joke in there somewhere. Tuesday night, um, my... Uh, freshman in high school son told us this. So a doctor comes in and talks to his patient, and he says, I'm sorry, but I have bad news and I have worse news. And the patient said, okay, tell me the bad news first. And he said, well, you've only got 24 hours to live. And the patient said, what's the worst news? And he said, I was supposed to tell you yesterday. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. I thought it was funny too. <laughs> okay, so some of you, um, some of us, struggle with that question of hard. Some of us have lots of um, doubts about why does life have to be so hard? Why does God allow so much hard? And I'm going to tell you, I'm not one of them. I kind of get it is what it is. That question's never bothered me, but my struggle has always come in how I deal with the hard, just sort of on a daily basis. And I will tell you that when my eyes are not fixed on Jesus, I get a lot of anxiety and I have this um, sinful default tendency to try to numb and drown my heart in eating too much and walking the eyes of Target, even if I don't buy anything, um, and too much Netflix and that sort of thing. And so over the last year, I would say in particular, the Holy Spirit has really been convicting me um, to deal with my heart in a way that honors God, God more. Now, I was so excited that this semester's study was going to be about the Psalms, because I can tell you in that last year, the Psalms truly have been probably the most influential tool um, I've had in learning how to deal with my, my um, hard things in a healthier way. They've helped me to understand that I can both suffer and trust God at the same time, and I feel like they've shaped even the language that I use to talk to God about my hard things, to speak to Him um, in a healthy way, and to believe Him that He is good and um, He is our rescuer, even when I don't feel that. Psalm 3, I'll tell you, is one of my top I'd say five or 10 all-time favorite Psalms because in just these few short verses, I feel like David so encapsulates both super hard things and so much trust at the same time. You know, every single Psalm originates in the author's experience, but we don't always get to know what that experience is. Psalm 3 is really special to me because it tells us right off the bat that this is a Psalm that David wrote when he fled from Absalom, his son. So we get to know the story that this whole um, psalm sprung from. And to me, it adds a lot of richness and depth to these words. 
So I wanna start out by reading the whole Psalm and then we'll go back and look at from 2 Samuel, the story of what was happening in David's life as, um, as he was writing this Psalm um, or as it was written. Um, let's read it first. Psalm three, if you wanna follow along with me, it's just eight verses. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who had set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So this psalm opens with David's crisis. As I said, it's a lament. We read portions of the story of David's crisis in our homework, but I wanna fill you in on some gaps. Honestly, this is one of the most intricate and dramatic and um, exciting, I think, stories in all of the Old Testament. I might be a little biased just because I've been studying it a lot lately. But before we um, get into the details of the story, I want you to know some things about King David and keep those in your mind as we talk through this. Number one, King David was appointed by God to be Israel's king. He is God's man, and that will be important as we talk through the rest of this story. Second thing about David is he loved and he worshiped and he respected and in many ways he followed and obeyed God, except for when he didn't. And when he didn't, he had some pretty big failures. One of David's shortcomings is that he took multiple wives. That wasn't God's idea and it caused um, what you might call some pretty serious family dysfunction. In his darkest moment, in his biggest sin uh, with Bathsheba years before, this sin changed the course of his life. Um, And years before he wrote this psalm, what had happened was that David um, saw another man's wife, Bathsheba. He wanted her. He took took her for his own. She got pregnant um, and tried to cover up her sin, his sin, he had her wife, her husband, um, killed, um, and then she became his wife. David could not escape God's judgment and the sin in the sight of God. As a result of that, there was a prophet named Nathan who told David that violence would be a part of his family and his throne until he died. Now, that incident happened many years before, but I think you see the fulfillment of that definitely in today's story. And the reality of that prophecy was ugly and complicated, um, but here's the gist of it. David had a son named Amnon who had raped his half-sister named Tamar. David knew about this, and um, he should have done something about this, but he refused to step into the situation and intervene for Tamar. Tamar had a full brother named Absalom. Absalom loved her, raged against both Amnon and David because of what had happened and because David didn't do anything Um, in defense of his daughter. 
Eventually, he kills his half-brother, Amnon, and then he sets about um, in this four-year plot of very methodically building his own following and his, um, uh, his own people, taking their loyalty away from his father, King David, um, and um, giving it to himself. When he's finally won enough people over, enough people in the king, uh, kingdom over to himself, he begins to amass an army, he gets ready for battle, and um, he, will, he will battle King David for the throne of Israel. And to be clear, if Absalom wins the throne of Israel, he will kill his father David because he would have to eliminate the threat of David ever coming back. Okay, and that's only one example of this family's dysfunction. There are a lot of other ones, and the story's actually a lot more complicated than that. I'm sort of boiling it down. I hope it makes us all feel a little bit better about our um, family junk. It's all relative. Look back with me again at just verses one and two now. I'm gonna read those again in light of what we just um, talked about. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. King David is in crisis here. So who are the foes? They are Absalom and his army, this massive army that had been previously loyal to David, but has now transferred their loyalty to Absalom and are preparing to fight and overthrow David to kill him and to um, usher in this new regime. Uh, The foes aren't just the fighting men. They are also, I think, family and friends, um, members of his court who had previously uh, been loyal to David, who have painfully turned their back on him. It's an epic reversal of fortune for David. You can imagine what it would be like to be a beloved king and then all of a sudden um, have your own family, your own son turn on you like this and bring a lot of people with them. David uses that word many five times in these um, eight verses. I think it definitely gives us a sense of the magnitude of the danger and the stress and the suffering he's enduring. These are for David desperate times. They are for David some of his hardest times. So against this backdrop of uh, a lot of hard things, what does David do? David cries out to God first. And I love that he seems to do this without any pretense. He just launches right in. I feel like there's this sense of him hurling himself into the arms of God, telling him everything that's on his heart, everything that's on his mind, While many have turned against David, he is still the king and he does have an army at his disposal. Yet the first thing he does is direct all of his need at God and not at man. I think a lot of um, our first instincts might be to sit down with your generals and have a plan. Okay, we're gonna do this and this and this and this is how we're gonna defeat them and this is how we're gonna go and this is how we'll overthrow them and this is how we're gonna take out the... Um, the enemy, but that first thing he does is look to God. His back is against the wall, but he's so clear-headed here. He's calm. He's in control of his actions. He's in control of his emotions. He's not wringing his hands. He's not lashing out in anger. He's not trying to get the opinions of everyone around him or the sympathy of everyone around him. I think David understands that would be wasted energy. 
Charles Spurgeon had this to say about David. Surely we should all speak the more boldly to men if we had more constant converse with God. He who dares to face his maker will not tremble before the sons of men. It is, as, it is as if David, as he speaks to the Lord, is gathering perspective and courage to face this situation at hand. So despite David's really significant sins, I see here a man who has done some hard spiritual work of repentance and establishing that broken relationship and fellowship between God and himself. I told you earlier about the situation between David and Bathsheba. If David had not repented, confessed, gone before God, and really done some work with the Lord after that incident, there is no way he would have the relationship with God that he does now. I think we see the evidence of that in this close, restored relationship with God. David had faced his maker in the past. I can't imagine anything that would cause more fear or trembling than when you have to go before your holy God and confess that kind of sin. But when he did, he found forgiveness. Um, after weathering that together, David knows that he can speak honestly and boldly to God. In verse 2, David tells God about the taunts he's hearing. There's no salvation for you. In other words, God isn't going to rescue you from this. Uh, for the most part, that word salvation here isn't referring to like the eternal salvation of his soul as much as it is about his actual life, which is in danger. Everyone around him is tearing him down. Um, and I think part of what they're saying and doing is to tear down his confidence. I also think some of probably people who loved him and were for him were sort of saying, sorry, David, you've sinned so much that even God's not going to help you out now. You've, you've ruined that with him. You've blown it. Um, a lot of people have turned against you, and God must have also. And without meaning to, I think that would have been um, or could have been a great source of um, discouragement to, to David, but it was not. David is not deterred by anyone or anything, not by self-doubt, not by what everyone else is saying, by keeping his eyes here just glued right to God, he is able to keep his faith. You know, I think all of us have something that works against us when we truly desire to cry out to God honestly and boldly and forthrightly. Um, my prayer for me and my prayer for all of us as I've studied this has been that we could identify what those roadblocks are, um, whether it's busyness or timidity or a sense of um, shame about past sin, which clearly if, um, we know from God's word that he can and will forgive anything. The, he died on the cross for every sin. I think David's a great example of that. Sometimes we have unhealthy coping mechanisms like I talked about in my life before, Whatever it was, I'm praying that we would all get rid of whatever it is that works against that um, intimacy with God that David had that we can have too. If you have believed in your own life that there's no hope for you, um, that God isn't for you uh, because your sin is too great, I hope this psalm helps you to really take heart. David sinned, but he uh, repented. He was forgiven. Um, because of the work of Christ. Like David, trust God. When we cry out to him, he hears us and he listens. 
Okay, now let's go back and look at verses three through six. So much happening here. I just wanna read those again. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me and all around. I love how this uh, verse three starts. But you, O Lord. David has been betrayed by a lot of people around him, including his own son. Uh, Also, um, in your homework, we read about his most trusted and close personal advisor who had um, abandoned him and taken up with Absalom. I cannot imagine um, the difficulty and pain that that caused. And really, because the whole country is sort of divided now and um, taking sides, there's a lot of personal just humiliation, I think, on um, David's part, upheaval in every aspect of his life. Those four words in light of that are so beautiful to me, but you, oh God. It's as if David is saying everything is ghastly, everything is also awful, but actually it's not. Because God is on my side, God is on my shield, God is my glory, God is the lifter of my head, and that's why I can go on. Psalm 28.7 on your verse sheet has a, uh, echoes this thought, I think, so beautifully. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. So this word shield, a shield is a protective cover, of course. I think we all uh, have that image of of a medieval knight's shield. God is David's shield, his protection from both physical and um, spiritual and emotional danger. The full meaning of that word here in the original language is pretty amazing because it doesn't just speak of that shield that would cover our front, but a protective covering that comes over us and from beneath us and even within us, outward and outward within us. It's a complete covering and protection um, that God provides for us. Again, Charles Spurgeon had this beautiful thing to say about this psalm. He says, oh, what a shield is God for his people. His, he wards off the fiery darts of Satan from beneath and the storms of trial from above, while at the same instant he speaks peace to the tempest within our breast. God protects and shields his people from danger probably far more than we realize. You know, Jesus says that Satan is like a prowling lion looking to steal and kill and destroy by any means possible. We certainly fall prey to our own sin and the sin of others, but I wonder how Many times God um, protects us, shields us from things that we don't even know about or don't have a clue about. I've become really grateful uh, for that uh, thought um, as I've studied this. I think there's an old Amy Grant song about it that's kind of going through my head right now. I wonder how many times the Lord has um, protected me from threat today. 
Going back to Spurgeon's quote, that tempest within the breast that he talks about is also a protection from anxiety and fear when those arrows are coming towards us. When we, like David, just lock in on God and not on our hard circumstances around us, he can shield us even from our anxiety and fear as well. There's another aspect of this shield that David was aware of. Two other times in other psalms, the king of Israel is called the shield of his people. And David is the king of Israel still, so he is his people's shield as well. And it makes sense, right? One of the primary uh, responsibilities of a leader of a country is to protect their people. What I love about this is that even as David had the responsibility and was trying to carry out the responsibility of shielding his people, God was a shield to him. I think he understood that God ultimately protects all of us um, and protects us as we protect others. We too have to shield people in some ways. I think very much of being a parent and in the thousand million ways that we need to protect our children um, every day. I also think about God's word that commands us to um, protect uh, the needy and those who are um, defenseless. So we are a shield to others. And as we do that, God is a shield to us. David would have to put himself in harm's way, personally put himself in harm's way to defend that throne that God had ordained for him. He would defend those um, and really be responsible for those who fought alongside him against Absalom. When David and when we stand in that gap for the defenseless and for those we are responsible for, God shields them, but he shields us too. David also calls God his glory. That's not a small thing. David is a man who has tasted personal glory in his life. He was the hero, uh, the young hero who slayed Goliath. He was the hero that everybody just swooned over and loved when he first became king. He is now, or just prior to this incident, uh, really wealthy and powerful. He has tasted personal glory for many, many years. Right now, all of that is gone. His hard times are really hard, even on that deep personal level. He's been unthroned. He has been um, told he's not wanted anymore. He has been told he's no longer loved. He's been disrespected. He's been jeered at. David has been stripped, really, of his personal honor uh, and glory, something he'd had for a long time, but he says that God is his glory. So I think there's a powerful lesson for us here. Our value and our worth are not dependent on what the world thinks of us. They're not, our, power, our, our, um, our value and our worth are not dependent on our status, on our ability. Each of us as a woman uh, has value and worth because we are created by and loved by the living God. From the world's perspective, David's glory is gone, but it wasn't true, and he knew it, and that's why he calls God his glory. 
He is a child of God. That's where his glory lies, and that's where our glory is also. Look at Zephaniah 3.17 on your verse sheet. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That is getting to experience God's glory. David also calls um, God the lifter of his head. That is a beautiful word picture here. I think we all can think of that experience, probably when we read this of a time when our heads were literally bowed in defeat or weariness or um, sadness or shame. David acknowledges here that his head has been bowed by what's happening around him, by that betrayal and hardship, but God has so, again, but God has so capably lifted him up. I sense gratitude, but I also think sort of a holy pride here and God's power and mercy and his ability um, to do that on David's behalf. When David really easily could have been incapacitated by the magnitude of his hardship, God restores him and encourages him, and David allowed him to do that. And then David acknowledges for the world that he did that. When we're living through hard and our heads are bowed, either literally or figuratively or both, I think it's really tempting to try to grab relief wherever we can find it. Again, that's different for all of us, um, but that kind of relief doesn't last, and sometimes it does a lot more harm than good. One of those things I've learned in the last couple of years as I've um, been working on how I um, respond to God in my heart is that whatever that temporary relief is, it is nothing in comparison to what the God of the universe who knows me, who loves me completely, um, does for me when I allow him to lift my head. When I've trusted him, when I've waited for him, when I've allowed him in his time on his terms, to bring relief. Those have been some of the sweetest moments of my life. Look with me at Psalm 42. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He, I think, is the key word there. In verse five, David says what I think is an amazing thing. I lay down and slept, and I woke up again because the Lord sustained me. In the midst of being on the run for his life, trying to figure out who on earth he can trust, who he can't, how long is he going to hold on to power, um, where even am I going to sleep in the forest that he was hiding out in, David isn't too stressed or anxious um, or worried to rest. The last thing I would think David would be um, thinking about and talking about here really is rest. If there was ever a time to sleep with one eye open and be really vigilant all day and all night long in a really practical way and on guard, I think it would be now. We're pretty much defenseless when we sleep. It's a real vulnerable um, state. And if you think about really what's going on right now, he's He's hiding out in the woods with some people around him um, that he hopes that are on his side, but he's had a lot of betrayal, including his most trusted personal advisor. So if it were me, I'd be wondering who really can I trust right now? And is the person that's sleeping beside me really a double agent? Are they going to kill me while I sleep? 
David does not do this because he understands that the God Almighty is his defender and his sustainer. And so he can rest. He doesn't have to be vigilant himself in that way because God is vigilant for him. He doesn't have to keep one eye open all night long because God has his eyes on him. Because God is for him, David can rest in genuine peace. I think it takes us really knowing and trusting and believing who God is for that to happen in our own lives, um, you know, really in all different ways, not just in this real literal sense of David's. I'll bet if I asked you to raise your hands, which I'm not going to, um, if you have ever laid awake at night and um, worried or um, had your mind racing, most of us would say yes to that. My personal um, favorite late night awake uh, thing that I do is to wake up and just replay and ruminate on conversations that didn't go well during the day. And I'll think of all the things I could have said and all the great responses I could have had, or I'll kind of remake it up and think of all the great ways the person could have responded to me that were more positively. Um, I've spent way too much time doing that kind of thing. If I were David, um, I would have lost, I think, a lot of sleep probably worrying about or thinking about, if I'd been a better parent to Absalom, if I'd taught him better manners, if I'd had a closer relationship with him, if I'd gone to all the class parties, if I'd taught him to eat all of his vegetables, we wouldn't be in this situation right now. He wouldn't have betrayed me. This is all my fault because I wasn't a good parent. That's all lies. That's where, yeah, I'm just, that's where my mind goes at night. I'm sort of making light of it, but those really are wrong thought patterns that are a struggle for many of us, I think that's a way that this kind of this rest at night plays out. But we can rest. We can let our defenses down day or night when we understand and believe that if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us and he is almighty and he is all powerful and he is all good, then we have nothing to fear or worry about because he's got us. And if he's all those things, we can also ask him to um, really step into those wrong thought patterns we have that cause us that anxiety and fear. We can follow God, uh, David's example here. Um, when we wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety and fears and worry, um, or when we have those during the day, and choose to remember. It really is a choice. Choose to remember that he is God and we are not. Um, and one of those things that I've been working on in the last year, too, is to recognize that my late-night anxiety is really, um, for me at least, a, a sin of, of a lack of trust in the living God. One of the tools I've been able to start using is to slowly recite. I actually learned uh, this from, um, from a, a, a much older and incredibly wise woman. Uh, to slowly recite whatever scriptures comes to mind to myself super slowly and almost think about it word by word, sort of meditatively. And um, that puts my mind back where it's supposed to be and is filling my head with truth. I am, would like to memorize verse five and six after today. Um, and that would be when I think I could slowly and thoughtfully in the night repeat to myself um, that would lead to some great peace and rest, I think. Um, David trusted God 
And that allowed him to get the rest he needed. We too can trust God because when we trust him and not ourselves, that's where we find peaceful rest. David makes this real bold statement in verse six. Literally, thousands of people are surrounding him. When he says many thousands here, he means that very literally. They're bent on his destruction. He says, yet I will not be afraid. I think Psalm 23, four echoes, who, and David wrote that as well, echoes that really beautifully on your verse sheet. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Nothing is impossible with God. If David can face enormous opposition with courage and faith, we can too. We have that same spirit of God living in us that he did. You know, David was just a man. He didn't have superpowers. Um, I think sometimes I think of David and his enormous sin, but then sometimes I think of this hero of the faith that I couldn't possibly um, match he was a man just like us. What he had and what worked for him was this really big view of God. And that comes directly, I think, from God's word. So when I, when we absorb God's word really deeply into our hearts and minds, it makes us brave too, like David was brave. Psalm 147 on your verse sheet. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Because of God's power, David didn't have any need to fear, and neither do we. Like David, trust God to be your protection and to be your strength. Now look with me at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. This is David's very bold plea for help here. And before we talk any more about this verse, let's pick back up where we left off in the story of David and Absalom. I only told you a little bit about it before. So we are at the point now in Absalom's rebellion that these two armies are encamped in the forest. And it must have been really rugged terrain because uh, the story in 2 Samuel tells us that actually during the battle, more people died because of the landscape, whatever that looked like then um, in the actual hand-to-hand combat. So these two armies are in the forest. They are about to go at each other. Um, As Absalom gathers more of that following, Um, David has left Jerusalem. Um, He is out sort of on his own. There's a day that comes where these two men finally go to battle, um, and the scriptures tell us that 20,000 men died in that one day in the forest between these two armies combined. That's That's a pretty horrific thing that happened there. But in the end, David's army prevailed, David obviously lived. Remember when I told you earlier that God appointed David to be king. God did not allow Absalom, no matter how long he had plotted and schemed, no matter how many young fighting men he had on his side, no matter uh, how big of a following he had, God did not allow Absalom to um, prevail against his man, David. So as the, I'm sure you read this and it's kind of crazy to believe, but uh, as the battle was ending, 
Absalom was riding his mule. Remember, we're in this thick forest. He rides under this giant oak tree. He had this long, luscious head of hair that he was sort of famous for. That big head of hair gets caught in tree branches as he rides his mule under a low tree. The mule keeps going, and he is left hanging there, and that really happened. So he's hanging there defenseless. Some of David's men come, happen to, come upon him, and they um, kill him, and it's pretty gruesome. You can go back and read it. It's, a, it's an ugly culmination to a kind of an ugly string of events here. So David's army has won. Absalom is dead. And so the rebellion is over and David is restored as the rightful king of Israel. Sort of for the purposes of understanding this psalm, that's sort of all we need to know from the story, but I cannot help uh, but share with you what happens after that, which is um, David being utterly heartbroken over the death of Absalom. Before the battle, David had actually told his generals, kill who you need to kill, but spare Absalom. Do not kill Absalom. And they actually didn't during the battle, but they did afterwards. I think that just shows the the depth of a parent's love given uh, how Absalom had betrayed him. I think David is also heartbroken over the string of events and the fact that his personal failure in some ways, um, Absalom is responsible for himself, obviously, but David's personal failures and the way he set up his family in some ways did lead to this string of events in which his own son and 20,000 other people's sons died as well that day. So he is restored, but there's also a lot of hardship still there. But we do know that God answered David's prayer. David did pray to be rescued, and he was. Look closely at verse 7, knowing that the battle we just talked about was that backdrop. Arise, O Lord, save me, for you strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked." David clearly calls on God to destroy his enemies. Now, this is a prayer that calls for violence. And that deadly battle, like I said, I think was probably pretty horrific. But David's motives here are pure and good. I think sometimes to our modern ears, a call for that kind of um, violence to God sounds a little um, strange to us. The key word here is wicked, meaning those who oppose God and his plans. Because God God had personally chosen David to be the king, anyone who opposed that plan opposed God as well. David was right in asking God to destroy his enemies. It reflects, I think, their intimate relationship. David wants what God wants. His prayer actually reminds me of a prayer of Moses. If you were with us when we studied um, Numbers last semester, look with me at Numbers 35 on your verse sheet, 1035. This was uh, Moses praying. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from you. Here too, uh, with both Moses and David, the enemy are those who oppose God and the plans of God, not just our personal enemies that they or us want to get revenge on. To strike someone on the cheek means to slap them across the face, and that implies that God would humble and humiliate them. I'm glad that God humiliates the wicked and thwarts their plans. It honestly brings me a lot of peace in this hard and fallen world. 
when those who oppose God are put in their place, so to speak, the whole world has the opportunity to learn that only God is God, no powerful man is God, and in fact, the most powerful people in the world are no match um, against the living God. You can see David's rock-solid faith as he writes um, the truth of that in this psalm and many others, and I think that's the secret to David's peace in the midst of his storm. He knows how big and mighty God is and really how small and significant man is in comparison, including really powerful men with really powerful plans. David's faith helps us to look beyond the way things seem to be when ruthless leaders rule the world, when ruthless leaders are against us. The truth is, Nobody does anything that God doesn't allow, um, and those who oppose God will have to stand before him in judgment, and I, I get a lot of strength and hope from that, both now and, um, and as I look to the future. When David asked God to break the teeth of the wicked, it paints, again, a real vivid picture of this snarling enemy Uh, maybe a fierce wild animal that was looking to devour David. And when God breaks the teeth of that animal, it would do two things. It would both incapacitate the animal from being able to um, devour David, but it would also keep them from being able to eat in the future, which then their power goes away. Um, And um, that's another picture, I think, of God's very uh, power over wickedness and sin. When thousands of people who were amassed against David, uh, bent on his destruction, were there and the situation looked grim, he chose faith over fear and made this bold plea to God for help, and God showed up. So we aren't, as women, likely to have to experience frontline hand-to-hand combat like um, David did, I'm glad for that. But I don't have to tell you that we're all fighting battles of our own. Some of us have battles. In fact, they're exactly as big as David's were when he wrote this. And even our smaller battles, a battle is a battle and suffering is suffering. Injuries, mental health issues, chronic um, illnesses, dysfunctional family relationships, death of big dreams, um, constant struggle against sin when we really want to obey God, I have fought every one of these battles, sometimes in my own strength and sometimes in God's. And what I can tell you is every time I fought them in my own strength, I have fallen flat on my face. I have learned and I am still learning that when I entrust my battles to God, he is willing and he is able to fight for me. And he does. I had a... um, situation about six years ago when I had some really severe insomnia. And for weeks on end, I was only sleeping just a few hours a night. And I was kind of a big mess um, after some weeks of that. I can't remember how many now. And I remember this one um, early morning. It was about five-ish in the morning. I hadn't slept all night long. And I was pretty desperate. And I sort of sat up in bed and all I could think to do literally was just say, help me, God, help me, God, help me, God, help me, God. And it's just a real stark memory for me. And um, later that morning, just a few hours later, a a friend who I hadn't even told that much about this 
called out of the blue and out of the blue and um, said, hey, I know this doctor who I think might be able to help you. And I'd gone to several doctors before and it hadn't helped at all. I've tried everything I could find online, whatever. So I called and um, the receptionist said, well, usually there's, I don't know, it's like a six week or two week month wait or whatever, but we just had a cancellation. Can you come in right now? So I went and um, that doctor ended up putting me on a path. It didn't happen right away, but put me on a path um, where I was eventually able to sleep um, again, which kind of helped a lot of other things in my life as well. And what I'll tell you is that since then, almost every time that I have been scared or discouraged or overwhelmed, that memory of that morning at five o'clock and how God came to my rescue comes to mind. And it has strengthened my faith as much as anything ever has in my whole life. I think David was probably in the same way in that when he was in a really hard place, he came to God, God came to his rescue. Um, We serve that same God David's story, my story can be all of our stories. No matter what our battle is, know and really believe that our great, big, powerful God in his way, in his time, will come to the rescue of his people. Like David, believe the truth that nothing is too hard for God. And I think sometimes when that trust and faith that nothing is too hard is hard to come by, we can pray for that too. God's the provider of all good things. Now let's look at verse eight. It concludes this way. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is David's praise towards the end of a real hard situation. Look back at verse two. Verse eight is an answer to the taunts of verse two. In verse two, he tells God, many are saying to my soul, there's no no salvation for me. And in verse eight, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. The end of this Psalm disputes those taunts that both friends and enemies alike um, had for David earlier. And it gives all the credit, not to himself, not to his generals, but to God. The hardest time is over. The rebellion has been put down. David's reign is once again secure. Because Absalom is dead, there's no um, threat from him in the future. From a human perspective, um, David was probably this close to losing it all in this story, but he fought back and won. This story, I think with all its intrigue and drama, would make such a good novel or movie, particularly because everybody loves an underdog, which in, uh, from a human perspective, I think David was in this story. But David doesn't have any misplaced pride in his own doings of getting out of this situation. He doesn't say, say salvation belongs to me, salvation belongs to my army. He says salvation belongs to the Lord. Both friends and enemies had said he had no hope but God came to his rescue and he gives all the credit and glory to God. He didn't save himself, God saved him. It's always the way of things, but we're just not always so quick to see it. I admire very much here that David was quick to see that. The last line of David's Psalm, your blessing be on your people, looks ahead to a time when Israel, his beloved people, will once again be reunited under um, one leader. God eliminated those who were um, out to do David harm. 
He's free now to go forward with healing. I like that this does, psalm doesn't end with a, a, a request for a personal blessing. He's a great leader here. Instead, he requests the blessing for all his people. And without a doubt, there are people left alive who were those who um, were squarely on Absalom's side. So David is asking for the blessing of even those who had turned against him as well. We too can be women who turn outward and bless others when we ourselves have been blessed and helped. David walked through some really hard times. He endured those hard times with his eyes locked on the Lord and his word. He came out the other side with faith, with praise on his lips. Look with me at Isaiah 40 on your verse sheet. Have you not known, have you not heard The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Like David, trust God because he rescues us, he defends us, he preserves us, and he upholds us. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good, and you are great, and you are worthy of all of our trust in the hardest times and in all of the time, Lord. I am asking that we would be women who would trust you with everything in us. I'm asking that you would show us the places where we don't trust you now and that we would, um, by your power, rid ourselves of those things so that we would lean hard and fully into you every day of our lives. You are worthy of that, God. Um, You are our glory. You are the lifter of our heads, and we give you praise and honor today and just gratitude because of that. And it's in your holy name I pray. Amen.